0: Up, please. I would like to speak a few words on temperance, that's fine, keep it down there, ladies and gentlemen, down with rum, ever since the beginning of time there has been a drink problem, quite a problem, even a greater problem now, it's so scarce. Throughout the Middle Ages, the use of liquor was universal, and drunkenness was so common, it was unnoticed. They called it the Middle Ages, because no one was able to walk home unless they were between two other fellows. I was usually the middle guy. But through the years, enlightenment came, and with it, the control of Spiritus Fermenti. And controlling Spiritus Fermenti is tougher than tying a hair ribbon on a bolt of lightning. (laughs) That's a good simile. The first instance of federal authority in this country was when George Washington put down the Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania, I imagine George put down a little of the vile stuff, too. (laughs) There was a fellow that really lived. What a guy, what a man. Now, before I go any further, please do not labor under the misconception that I always have been a teetotaler. No. In my younger days, I was prone to take a nip. I chortle now at the former weakness in my otherwise strong character. But how well I remember my first encounter with a devil's brew. Devil's brew. I happened to stumble across a case of bourbon, and I went right on stumbling for several days thereafter. Of course now, I touch nothing stronger than buttermilk. 90 proof, buttermilk. I look on my days of revelry with scorn and reproachment and shudder when I recall going to the corner saloon, tugging at my daddy's coattails and saying, Father, dear father, come home with me now and bring a jug with you. However, I came from a very illustrious family, My great-grandfather was a friend of Benjamin Franklin's. In fact, my great-grandfather would have discovered electricity, but he was too poor to buy a kite. He had to go out and hire one. I have a picture of him at home, standing in front of the town tavern. He was hiring a kite, much higher.
1: Thank you.
2: it's been bug out square thanks for doing what you got to do to do uh stay tuned for uh fuck off this is the sound
3: of musical curiosity bitch um no it's uh it's not that at all but uh bear is here what do you got going for us bear mike two mike
4: mike two march madness March madness, uh it is upon us Yeah. it is So song's about madness dig all right and
3: uh, uh Remember in these in these troubled times, uh, uh,
4: wash your hands and count to twenty.
7: the roxy theater is san francisco's favorite non-profit art house cinema bringing you the best coolest weirdest most thought-provoking movies of the past present and future hands down there is no better way to get your film fix than at this legendary historic theater visit www.roxy.com that's w-w-w-r-o-x-i-e.com today for showtimes and
8: tickets
9: Circles in the the way, the... Everybody should listen to Muni Radio at MuniRadio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things.
0: Are you tired?
5: The crops are all in, and the peaches are rotten. The oranges are packed in the creosote dumps. They're flying them back to the Mexican border to save all their money, then wade back again.
3: Good morning, mutineers. This is The Bee, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. On
5: mutinyradio.fm, done just the same.
3: They
8: died
5: in the hills and they died in the valley. Some went to heaven without any name. Goodbye to my one, goodbye, Rosalita. Leda.
10: Adios me amigo, Jesus, maria. You won't have a name when you ride the all you will be, deep, or
1: deep
5: Some of us are illegal and others not wanted. Our work contracts out and we have to move on hundred
9: miles to the mexican border they chase us like rustlers like outlaws like thieves goodbye
3: Good morning, everyone. This is the Labor and Love Show. Welcome to you.
7: Two days past goes 18, on, huh? he was waiting for there the bus in his here. army green. Sat Washington Washington down in a morning, Washington. cafe there, Four gave goes his order on. to a girl with a bow hair he's a little shy so she gave him a smile and he said would you mind sitting down for a while and talking to me i'm feeling a little low she said i'm off in an hour and i know where we can go so they went down Ball game, the Lord's Prayer said, in the anthem sang. A man said, Folks, would you?
9: Okay.
3: Okay, Edit James there. And you know you got to serve somebody. Good morning everyone. This is the B. Welcome to Labor and Love Radio on Mutiny Radio. And MutinyRadio.fm. We're coming at you this morning from 2781 21st Street in the Meadow Meadow, the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco. This is the show where we tell you like it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, wherever you work, you're probably on the menu, and never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Good morning, everybody. We had uh, our opening set there. Started out, of course, with "Deportees." Deportees by the Highwayman. Highwayman none other than willie nelson waylon jennings chris Christofferson. Um, quite a group there johnny cash singing lead there on just deportees much more uh, about that in a bit we had, then we had traveling soldier by the dixie chicks about to the fact that every day somewhere american troops are involved in wars every day this is for those soldiers who are out there and also to get them back home wars where workers of one class shoot down workers of another class thin out the possibility of resistance to capitalism and last we had etta james queen of the blues gotta serve somebody the bob dylan classic reminds us That, yes, your indecision, your hesitation, serve someone. By just standing around, you're rushing backwards. Okay, now I remarked about that case. We're talking about that case of uh, deportees. This is the song, of course, relates the fact that even though these people have come to United States and worked, you know, they're uncelebrated. No one remembers them. Just barely their names. And other than that, they'll be just deportees. The song was written by Woody Guthrie and popularized by Pete Seeger. Since then, it's been recorded by virtually everybody. in the, certainly in the country and Western genre. Um, anyway, a, a Chicano writer named Tim Z. Hernandez decided that, yeah, that wasn't good enough. He wanted to go and find out who these people were. This is part of a uh, an interview uh, on Latino USA,
11: thirty-two people on the plane, four Americans, including three crew members and an immigration official, and twenty-eight migrant farm workers. Everyone died that morning, all in the same way. But they were not all treated the same after death. The twenty-eight Mexican field workers on that plane were known as braceros. They had come here at the request of the US government and were headed back to Mexico, but didn't make it. After the crash, only the remains of the four Americans were sent back to their families. The Mexican citizens were buried in a mass grave in California under a tiny plaque that read,
12: 28 Mexican citizens who died in an airplane accident near Colinga.
11: 28 Mexican citizens. That's all they would call them. And for decades, that's all there was. No one identified the remains of the 28 passengers. No one asked for their families no one really paid attention until a Mexican-American author came along, and it became personal. From NPR and Futuro Media, this is Latino USA. I'm Fernanda Chavarri, guest hosting today's episode, where we go back 70 years to find out the names of those 28 unnamed people and find out how one man made it his life mission to give them names. And to
6: do that, I'm joined by producer Maggie Freeling. Hi, Maggie. Hey, Fernanda. So when you and I found out about this incident that took place 70 years ago, we were talking about how these people were virtually forgotten. They were nameless in death and in the news. But the crash itself, it turns out that more people might know about it than they realize. Goodbye to my one,
10: goodbye Rosalita. Adios, mi amigos. And it's
11: all because of one song that kept the story alive throughout the decades, a song that has a very long,
6: confusing title. Deportee, parentheses, Plain Wreck at Los Gatos. And it's sung here by Pete Seeger, a super famous American folk music icon.
13: Six hundred miles to that Mexico border.
2: They chase us like applause and but Pete like didn't
11: write the song. He just made it famous in the
6: 1950s, Goodbye. and Woody's son, Arlo Guthrie. Goodbye,
8: Adios,
11: amigos, so you have all these super-famous all-American music icons singing about Mexican farm workers
6: in the 1940s. And it's really crazy, because this song was sung throughout the decades, and yet nobody bothered to find out who these people were
4: and my father left
13: a lot of songs like this sometimes I call them like seeds to be harvested by the next generation so the the thing is that he left this song with the question why weren't the deportees named
14: These were the words that kept sort of, I kept humming in my head, all they will call you will be deported. all they will call you. Uh, I'm Tim Hernandez, and I'm the author who's been working on this playing at Los Catos for the last uh, seven years. And the
6: name of your book is? The name of my
8: book is All They Will Call You. So here's where Tim comes
6: in. He's a professor and an author, so he's always sort of digging for stories. One day, Tim was doing research for something unrelated back in 2010, when he came across a newspaper article. And it
14: said, 100 people see an airplane fall out of the sky, ship plunge to earth, and, and it was a farm labor accident.
11: So Tim was like, weird, that sounds familiar. And he realized that it was the same story as the one he knew from the song. And the same way that Woody Guthrie was bothered by the injustice decades ago, Tim too wanted resolution for the families of the victims. So Tim set off on a quest.
14: You know, I just let my curiosity sort of pull me and I began to ask who is all and who are they and what do they call you and and that's uh, that's just what kept me going. That was the a quest
11: that over the years became more and more personal for Tim as he saw the similarities between his life growing up in the Central Valley and the migrant farm workers who died that day.
14: You know, growing up the son of migrant farm workers, I saw firsthand the moments where my family uh, felt voiceless. And, um, and I started to see them play out as I got older, not beyond my family. I'd see them play out in the broader community, you know. Tim put himself in the shoes of these 28 families and thought, this could have been
6: me. This could have been my family.
14: I was born and raised here in California's San Joaquin Valley, the agricultural hub here. Uh, My parents were actually migrant farm workers originally from South Texas and New Mexico. You know, kind of growing up with migrant family, uh, you know, we traveled a lot, quite a bit, working in different fields and different harvests um, throughout the year. And my parents did that pretty much, uh, you know, up until, I don't know, I was about maybe eight or nine. And although
11: Tim's family didn't participate in the Bracero program, they did spend generations working the fields in Texas and California.
2: Farming is America's biggest industry. All such farm jobs, which are tough, dirty, or unpleasant, are generally referred to as stoop labor.
11: The Bracero program, to summarize, was a seasonal worker program that was a sort of amicable agreement between the U.S. and Mexico that went on from the early 40s to the mid-60s. At that time, the U.S. desperately needed workers to pick fruits and
2: vegetables. It isn't easy to find men willing to take on such undesirable kinds of work. Understandably then, the American farm labor supply falls short and is supplemented by Mexican citizens.
11: So they gave Mexican farm workers temporary permits to come here
6: and do the work. Millions of Mexican workers came and went. When the harvesting season was over and the U.S. government didn't need them anymore, they would send them back by train or fly them by plane. And that morning, that's exactly what was happening.
11: Those 28 migrant workers were flying from San Francisco to El Centro, right on the border with Mexico, in a U.S. government chartered plane.
6: So, based on Tim's research and interviews with the families over the years, here's what happened after the crash. Officials recovered as many scattered body parts as they could. Then they formally notified the families of the four Americans and sent them caskets of pieced together remains, some as far as upstate New York.
11: As for the Mexican passengers, the leftover body parts were also put in caskets, but they were not sent back to Mexico. They were buried in that mass grave we mentioned earlier, 14 on one side, 14 on the other in Fresno, California. So the
6: Mexican passengers' bodies were never repatriated. Some families in Mexico were notified by the Mexican government via letter. Others only heard about it on the radio. It's unclear exactly how each of the families found out, and if they even knew where their loved ones were buried. We reached out to the Mexican government officials at the embassy in
11: D.C., but were denied an interview. Of course, we weren't going to find people working there who were working for the Mexican government 70 years ago, but we wanted to know how the government handled this. An official said via email that today, their policy is to help families in Mexico find funeral homes and cremation services in the U.S., and that based on the family's financial need, the Mexican government can help them pay for part of the cost of getting their remains back to Mexico.
6: We also wanted to know how only some of the victims of the crash ended up identified. So to find out, we flew to meet Tim Hernandez in California.
15: This is all cattle territory up here. It's uh, Los Gatos Canyon. It's all ranchers. In fact, Larry's um, family were cattle ranchers up there. They were-
11: correct. were. Okay. Oh so- did you see the baby cows?
9: I'm sorry. No. They were the cutest little
15: <laughs> baby cows. <laughs> did you see the big Longhorns earlier? Yes. Yeah.
6: We're driving to Colinga about an hour southwest from Fresno with Tim and his friend Larry Hawes. Larry's a Harley riding, leather vest wearing white guy. He's sort of Tim's
11: sidekick and an unofficial historian of his own family, the family that owned the property where the plane crashed 70 years ago.
14: It's hard, every turn looks the same here, unless you know exactly where the crash happened. So then that's what prompted me to want to call, find Larry's, the Gaston family, so that I could identify exactly where it happened.
11: I have to ask, what are we driving through? What is, what is
7: this?
15: This is called the oil patch and this is the Kalinga oil field and uh, this is, uh, Kalinga is actually coaling station A.
6: Oil was actually discovered here, and today there's a whole bunch of industrial
14: oil derricks covering a huge part of a barren desert area. The plane would have been able to see these oil derricks as it was coming in here this way. And because he had crash-landed that airplane twice before, it, it makes sense that one could actually, you know, you could surmise from that that he was more than likely looking for a strip of dirt to land on. There's nothing you could do. crash-landed it two twice? Times. <laughs> that same exact airplane he had crash-landed twice before.
6: Okay, so it wasn't the exact plane, but the kind of plane. A Douglas DC-3, which back in the 30s and 40s was a pretty revolutionary plane. Frank Atkinson, the pilot, was used to flying and crash-landing the DC-3. So, he thought he could land that plane again. And he might have
15: been able to, if all that was wrong was a plane malfunction. But plane wing broke off and it started spinning out of control and throwing people out.
11: We're here? We We are here. We're going through the barbed wire fence. I'm so short. This barely works.
15: (laughs) This is the actual crash site, and this was where the main bodies were at, and dead people were everywhere, right where we're standing.
11: Larry wasn't born when the plane crashed, but growing up, he heard stories about that
6: day and about how his family raced to the scene to help in any way they could. Larry's mom and his Aunt June were little girls at the time. His Aunt June was nine years old when she saw the wreckage and is the only surviving witness in Larry's family.
14: June was standing, you know, not too far off here, looking at and eyewitnessing witnessing all this.
6: June is turning 80 soon,
11: and she still remembers it all in very graphic detail. So we called her to get her account of what happened.
8: We saw bushes with brains hanging on it, and my thought then, as a little girl, that looks like decorating a Christmas tree. It was just all over with these brains.
11: At the time, June didn't realize the impact this would have on her beyond the trauma of
6: witnessing a crash. Do you remember as you got older, learning more about it?
8: I do remember because my mother was following it in the papers. And I remember her shortly after that saying, this has become an international incident because they've buried all of these uh, people together in a mass grave. Then that really occurred to me, how really terrible that was, that they were just demeaning these people because they weren't us. By leaving their name off, I finally came to see what an insult it was.
6: Tim also felt like the 28 people who died that day were not treated humanely or equal to the families of the American passengers. So he wanted to right that wrong. Tim felt that these braceros were
11: sort of invisible in life. And then, in death, they weren't even given a name.
14: And some big dream I might have in the future maybe put a, some kind of a headstone marker with their names on it.
6: So first, he went to the cemetery in Fresno where the mass grave is. He wanted to see the plot. So he asked Carlos Rascón, the cemetery director, to show him.
11: After they walked over and saw the tiny plaque in the back of the cemetery that read, 28 Mexican citizens, Tim asked Carlos to see the cemetery's ledger of names. Surely, the cemetery would have a record of who was buried there,
6: right? But when Carlos pulled it out of the archives...
15: It just said, you know, um, Mexican nationals 28 times.
11: At this point, Carlos also wanted to find their names. He wanted to know who was buried in his cemetery. So Carlos joined Tim on his search, which led them to one more place, the Hall of Records in Fresno. That's the place that keeps all birth and death certificates. And it was there that they were finally able to get a list of names. But they quickly realized that list was unreliable. In Mexico, you usually have two last names, your maternal last name and paternal last name. And so many of them were treated as first names. There was somebody with the
6: last name Lara that was turning to a woman named Laura. And many of the names in Spanish were turned into Italian names. So they knew right away this list was botched.
15: The fact that they were misspelled, it kind of maybe shows a little bit of who might have been behind the pin or the books.
6: Sure enough, there had always been a list with the names. But why didn't it make it to the cemetery?
15: I would think that it's just, it was a very sad oversight, I would say.
6: So there they were with
11: an actual list of names in their hands for the first time, and it was wrong.
6: But then. Carlos remembered that every November on the Day of the Dead, someone came by to leave flowers at the mass grave. Someone was visiting a loved one. This was Tim's first real clue that these people were not totally forgotten. He wanted
11: to find who that person was, So Tim put out a call on the local paper in Fresno that said, if you or someone you know is related to any of the 28 Mexican passengers who died in that plane crash in 1948, contact me. And someone did. That's coming up after the break.
3: Okay, and uh, we'll take a break here, too. Play the rest of that later in the show. So far, Tim Tim Hernandez, the uh, Chicano writer, has decided to find out the names of those people, and not leave them just being deportees. Uh, great story. Okay, here's some poetry by Jack Kerouac. Steve Allen, I had a slouch hat top one
2: time. I yeah. had a slouch hat too one time, the old slouch hat. I just keep walking around, and he keeps walking around with me, around and around that necktie counter we went. When it rained, I wore my old slouch hat. It was a good felt that I uh, had to carry through many rainy days, late fall and early spring. Perhaps it was a rainy day, and the house dick might have saw my hat. Each tie on that ring worth six bucks. Brooks Brothers, 60 bucks worth of ties. Slacks with peculiarities. I couldn't even find a pair of slacks I thought it was suitable to wear. Wrapped one pair around me and pinned it in with a safety pin. (laughs) Pulled up my trousers and went out and looked at myself in the mirror. Oh, no, those won't do, and I walked out wrapped the slacks around my waist, took two other pair, went to the mirror, threw them at the salesman. No, those won't do. Good afternoon, and walked out. The slouch hat I got at Harvard Club, Yale Club, Princeton Club, or one of the other, Dartmouth Club, University Club, always barred the Yacht Club, because it was a little over my kin, because the doorman knew that only Mr. Astor, Mr. Vanderbilt, and Mr. Whitney belonged. He couldn't say, good morning, Mr. Astor, because he knew I wasn't Mr. Astor. I always figured a way to heal into those other clubs. Not only a member of who's who, but a who's who also have to be a member of who's who in New York in the special clique of who's. <laughs> I'd get in the athletic club many times, and I'd go up in the billiard room. and I would wander back around the room hands in back, and. Every coat rack I backed up against, to feel for the wallet. One day I walked out of there with ten wallets. Bellboy looking me over. Pretty soon, a very dignified-looking gentleman come up and buzzed the bellboy. He says, "Who?" And I says, "Man told me his name while we we're drinking at the bar and told me to meet him in this billiard room of at the athletic club. I don't see him, so I best I better go." Well, tell me about the old slouch hat. Oh, one of my numerous trips to one of the numerous clubs in New York City. The hat finally was left in the hotel, which I had to leave rather hardly one night, never to return. So the hat was given to the cast-offs of the hotel, which they collect and rummage cells. May now be worn by one of the members of Skid Row, New York City, the Bowery. I seen that hat by moonlight. Yeah, I had a pointed mustache, and I mean pointed half inch from here double-breasted vest and a derby hat and striped trousers, English shoes, black, very pointed. They were Hannah shoes. People on Broadway turn and look at me. The worst is yet to come. I had a paint snee, with a long black ribbon to my buttonhole, and I wore a carnation, white or red. Boy, did I look like something. A year later, I got caught. I was dressed differently and everything, but boy, that mustache and that pince-necks was really out of this world. I used that outfit six months. Finally, I had to pack it in because it was too well-worn. Pince-nez was in a coat I stole. Mustache I grew in the sanitarium while taking one of my numerous drug cures. My mother'd come to see me. She says, oh no, cut it off. I'm just having a little fun, mother. Took it on the lamb and went to Canada. Late at night, I'm full of morphine and I come down full of goofballs too. This guy had ventriloquist doll and he gave out this Texas Gweenan routine. Hello sucker, we like your money as well as anybody else's. As a matter of fact, the bigger your roll, the more we take you. He used to get everybody interested with the doll and cut out silhouettes, put stripes in your tie. Wound up in his room, gave him a shot of morphine out on the highway, I thumbed a riot into Buffalo, and I put the bum on the guy for something to eat. He said, eat in my drugstore." So we went in the back and he had corn on the cob and boiled potatoes. Say, fella, I always hear people talk about morphine. What's it look like? He shows me. He had a key, a cabinet. He had bottles of hundreds, quarter grains, half grains, pen upon dilaudid, everything. As soon as he tended the customers, I emptied the bottles. Got out of there pretty quick, bought a safety pin in Buffalo and took a shot in the toilet. Come out and saw a fella shaving, his coat hanging there. Hung my own coat and gave his coat a brush in my hand. Felt his wallet, washed my hands, went out and took off with the wallet. So I started out on a shoplifting campaign in Buffalo. It was about 1910. Wasn't very experienced at it. Started out with a top coat and sold it in a taxicab stand. Next day, I decided to get myself some suits. And I went up and I had a suit box. And I walked about and put the suit box in one of the dressing rooms, looked and fooled in the mirror, went out, and I hawked those two. Next day, like a damn fool, go out to the same store, but I got a newspaper instead of a suit box. Thought I'd try a new routine. Two guys kind of watching me. I went in and wrapped myself up, two suits, went in the elevator, bottom gentleman tapped me on the arm. Will you come with me, please? And the county jail, they ate breakfast, you got oatmeal with one spoonful of molasses. For lunch, stew, mostly bones, graveyard stew. And for supper, dinner, at night, beans. And you couldn't smoke. It's
3: been a bad week for uh, Jenny's ex-husband. The great Jenny,
16: No estoy pidiendo joyas, ni pieles, ni palacio. Alfombre, las calles al pasar, tampoco es que yo exija ni tierras ni riquezas más que estar recibiendo. Me gusta regalar, tan solo estoy pidiendo. Ojalá comprendiera.
3: a random set we had uh, first of all Jack Kerouac from an album that he made with uh, Steve Allen uh, the pianist uh, poetry for the beat generation that was Slouch Hat by Jack Kerouac and then from uh, Jenny Rivera the late Jenny Rivera late of uh Born and raised in Long Beach, California. And the bad news this week for her ex, Esteban Loyasa, Loyasa, hope I'm getting that right, who was a pitcher uh, for a while, a very accomplished pitcher, an all-star, started the all-star game for the American League, won 20 games with the Chicago White Sox. Uh was arrested in just across the border here in California with a big catch of uh, cocaine that was in a uh, in a secret room in his house Jenny sang ni princesa ni esclava I'm not a princess but I'm not a slave just a woman and John Fromer there another late Comrade, brother, John Fromer, uh, with We Do the Work. What I want to do now is finish the deportees uh, documentary. Uh, Tim Z. Hernandez's attempt to find out who those 28 deportees were, the ones who are sung about in the famous Woody Guthrie song. Here we go.
14: What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.
11: whose bodies had been buried in a mass grave
6: under a plaque that read 28 Mexican citizens. And not long after Tim put out the call, he got a response.
12: Someone gave me a piece of newspaper and said, look, they're talking about your grandpa's uh, plane crash.
6: This is Jaime
11: Ramirez. We met him in Fresno with Tim.
12: And I started reading it. He said, and I got my
11: computer and I started... Jaime went to his computer and started writing Tim an email. He wrote in Spanish, I know about the accident because that's where my maternal grandfather, named Ramón Paredes, and my uncle, Guadalupe Ramírez Lara, were killed. Jaime then included his
6: address...
12: My phone number...
6: ...and ended with, and, uh, if you need information, just let me know.
14: Anything that you want to know, just yeah. Come. What do you need to know? I'm right here. <laughs> I was like, wow. And so that was really hopeful. Your email, as short as it was and as quick as it was, it had so much hope inside of it, and so I was excited to, to meet you right away, yeah.
6: And not only is Jaime a surviving family member, but Tim didn't have to go to Mexico. Jaime was right there in
11: Fresno. Jaime owns a restaurant called Ole Frijole, and everyone in Fresno knows the restaurant. Most of the employees there are related to Jaime, and they're descendants of two of the passengers from the plane crash, his uncle and his grandpa.
14: So when he first told me that that was his restaurant, I said, no, I said, you're kidding, because I've been there since I was a kid. You know, I've been going there. I'm sure I've seen you before. And That's my restaurant. And I said, it's legendary, and he said, yeah, it is. You were looking for (laughs) me, and I was right there.
6: (laughs) And Jaime was there all along in more than one
11: way. Remember the flowers that someone was putting on the mass grave on Dia de los Muertos?
14: And I said, wow, you know, I wonder who that person is. Later on, I would learn that it it was was. you. Yes, I was in Salinas.
11: It was Jaime. He's the one that was putting flowers on the grave. He was Tim's first found family member. And turns out, he was also Tim's golden ticket.
12: The newspaper that my grandmother kept, and I kept it, I don't know why. So here's what happened.
11: Not long after the crash in 1948, a small Spanish-language newspaper published an article that listed every passenger with the correct spelling of both last names.
12: And they had all the names and where they were from in Mexico. The little towns.
6: This was it. Three years of searching, and Tim finally had their names.
11: In Very old. It looks like it's a front page, right?
14: Uh, yeah, it is. It is the front page.
11: Yeah, uh-huh. so nice it's a photo. front page, and in the front page you have the two photos of a priest <laughs> uh, looking the over the, the bodies yeah. for the funeral service. On the right side is the column that has all of the names. First, last name, where they're from the names of their parents or wives, if they knew them. Wow. I'm going to try to translate that as beautifully as it is written in Spanish. Mm -hmm. On Saturday, the 31st of January that just passed, there was a funeral for the 28 compatriots that were chosen by destiny to perish in an unfortunate accident near Colinga, California. Like, just the way that this mm-hmm. is written is super, like, old oh, it's, newspaper, it's very but
14: poetic it's really also. poetic. It's very poetic, and in fact, even the even the um, biblical sort of um,
6: Seeing how the Spanish-language paper uh, wrote about the 28 Mexican victims made it even more clear just how differently their deaths were treated and how their remains were handled. Twenty-eight families without closure without being able to have a physical place
11: to mourn. And although, yes, most of the families knew how their sons, brothers, and husbands had died, they didn't get to have a funeral or a place to visit their loved one, lay flowers, just grieve. And as any cemetery director would know, Carlos says there is an importance to being able to visit someone's grave.
15: It just uh, a sense of emptiness, like, wait a minute, you know, it's not just... Uh, some John Doe that got, you know, no family, indigent, nobody knows. Uh, there was information, and so it left kind of a blank there, like, wait a minute, you know.
11: So now, with the full names spelled correctly, Tim, Carlos, and Jaime could start the process of
6: making a proper headstone with all the names on it. And they would also travel to Mexico to try and find other families. Tim wanted to tell them that their loved ones were no longer in a nameless mass grave. So, the first family Tim wanted
11: to meet was Jaime's. Remember, both his grandfather and great uncle died in the crash. So, Tim and Jaime got on a plane and flew to Guanajuato in central Mexico. They were there on
6: the 67th anniversary of the crash. Jaime set up a meeting with his family. And right at 10 40 a.m., the time when the plane crashed, they had a moment of silence.
11: During the trip, Jaime told Tim a little more about his grandfather and great-uncle. Guadalupe and Ramon grew up in Charco de Pantoja, a farming community in Guanajuato. When they got older, they both
6: owned land and farmed garbanzo beans, wheat, and alfalfa. But their town struggled to get an irrigation system in place. They didn't have the money to get it set up. That's when the idea to go work in the fields in California came up. So they both went back and forth, working as braceros
11: and bringing money back to their town.
6: Do you remember stories growing up about them?
12: Yeah, it's my, my, tío. I still love a His uncle
11: liked horse riding and to just like and my, shoot up bullets in the air. Me
12: que iba al pueblo.
11: His uncle was so blonde that they called him corn hair, yes. like, <laughs> pelos elote. Jaime's family is split between Fresno, California, and Guanajuato. And these are the types of stories that have been keeping his grandfather alive in Jaime's memory. So for Jaime to tell his family his mother, mostly, that her father would no longer be buried under a nameless headstone, it was life-changing.
14: Now we know who the people are. Now we know who their lives are, who their family are, we know how they how they are in this community. With,
11: so on September us. 2nd, 2013, like the new headstone was unveiled in the cemetery. These braceros, who were once invisible and forgotten under a mass grave, had their names on a big, beautiful marble headstone.
14: Miguel Negrete
12: Alvarez Francisco Llamas Durán Santiago Garcia Elizondo Rosalio Padilla Estrada Bernabé López García Ramón Paredes González Tomás Aviña de Gracia Guadalupe Ramírez Lara Severo Medina Lara In this
6: moment of having these names carved into stone forever, this is what Tim and Jaime wanted for years.
12: Manuel Calderón Merino Luis Cuevas Miranda Martín Razo Navarro Ignacio Pérez Navarro Romano Choa Ochoa Apolonio Ramírez Placencia, Alberto Carlos Raigosa, Guadalupe Hernández Rodríguez María Santana Rodríguez Juan Valenzuela Ruiz Juensislao Flores José Ruiz José Valdivia Sánchez Jesús Mesa Santo Baldomero Marcas
14: Torres Around the edges of the headstone are 32 leaves for the song that says, Who are these friends, all scattered like dry leaves? Which brings us back to the song. Who are all these
6: friends now scattered? Folk musician Pete Seeger, just like Tim, was always curious about his friend Woody Guthrie's inspiration for the poem. When Tim was working on this back in 2013, Pete actually gave him a call. Hi,
8: this is Pete Seeger Uh, trying to get a message to Tim Hernandez, I'd like to talk to you.
6: Pete also wanted to know, who were these people? And Tim had the answer. Did you ever think,
14: Pete, you know, singing that song at any point that maybe someday someone would answer answer that, who are these friends?
15: No,
10: and you took it on as a job that God would want
15: done.
6: Tim wound up meeting Pete in person where he told him the names of the 28 passengers. And then, in commemoration, Pete played Deportee, Plane Wreck at Los Catos. Goodbye to my Juan.
0: Goodbye, Rosalita. Adios, mis amigos. Jesus
8: y Maria. Tim
6: wouldn't know it, but this would be the last time Pete when, would sing the song. When
8: you he
6: died a few months later.
8: Oh.
11: And those friends who were scattered like dry leaves had all been memorialized together in the end. The headstone also included the names of the four American crew members. Because as Tim saw it, leaving them out would be perpetuating the same kind of omission. That erasure that started all of this in the first place.
6: And since Tim had been in touch with the American families for a while, they were able to travel to Fresno and attend the ceremony at Holy Cross Cemetery. Jaime was there too. And at one point, a brown SUV pulled up
11: and Jaime's brother Guillermo got out. He opened the door and helped his 77-year-old mother, Caritina Paredes Murillo, step out. She was a kid when her father died in the crash.
12: My mother also, I think she said that she felt like uh, she was act in the actual burying ceremony From
11: Oh, because she never got to do an actual funeral. So yes, for her, this was she, really the yeah. first, as if it
6: was happening like, decades ago.
12: Yes, yes. She felt like that, like she was burying her father.
6: And when you're standing here right now, what are you thinking no, about?
12: <laughs> muy contento, I'd say in Spanish. Muy because he's
11: happy that there's recognition and honoring of them finally in this community at least because they didn't really get any recognition
12: or anything anywhere else
11: they were in darkness you could say in the sh- in the shadows almost yes in,
14: right? in the shadows yes. And I'll never forget when we asked her, you know, how do you feel, Caritina? And she said, well, I, I'm crying, and I don't know if they're tears of joy or tears of pain, you know.
11: After hearing the deportee song play a few times during the ceremony, the Ramirez family requested that mariachis play Mexico, lindo y querido.
12: Mexico, lindo y querido.
11: <laughs> si muero lejos de ti. Yeah.
12: Que digan que estoy y que me, y que me traigan. Que me Mexico, lindo y querido.
11: lyrics say my dear and beautiful Mexico if I die far away from you say that I'm sleeping so they can bring me back to you After meeting with Jaime's family, Tim continued traveling in Mexico and the U.S., trying to answer Woody Guthrie's question, who are these friends? And as of today, Tim has been able to connect with the relatives of six of the 28 Mexican passengers, so he's still searching.
0: As a chair of the California Latino Legislative Caucus, I rise to recognize a tragic incident that occurred 70 years ago. Two
11: weeks ago, on the 70th anniversary of the crash, the California State Senate held an emotional ceremony to formally recognize, for the first time in history, the 28 Mexican victims of the plane crash. Senator Ben Hueso stood next to Jaime and other surviving family members as they held photos of their relatives. And the Senate didn't forget to honor the man who spent seven years of his life making this all possible.
0: TIM HERNANDEZ DID THE WORK THAT THE GOVERNMENT SHOULD HAVE DONE. But 70 years later, they will be remembered as a valued part of the history of our state.
11: The story was produced by me, Fernanda Chavarri, and Maggie Freeling. It was edited by Nadia Raymond. The Latino USA team includes Marlon Bishop, Andres Caballero, Antonia Cerejido, Ginny Montalvo, Janice Yamoka, and Sayer Quevedo. Our engineer and music editor is Cornelius McMoiler. Our production manager is Natalia Fiedelholtz. Our interns are Estefani Cano and Reese Williams. Special thanks to Tim Hernandez. His book, All They Will Call You, is out now. Our theme music was.
5: Papa Nana that are robbing Guatemala banks blind. I don't like it, the KGB gulag concentration camps. I don't like the Maoist Cambodian death dance. Fifteen million were killed by Stalin, He's killed the terrorist war. He is killed our red revolution forevermore. I don't like anarchists screaming love is free. I don't like the CIA, they killed John Kennedy. Paranoid tanks sit in Prague and Hungary. But I don't like how the revolution paid for by the CIA. Tyranny in Turkey or Korea, 1980. Like right-wing death squad, democracy. Police state Iran, Nicaragua yesterday. They say, fair government, keep the secret police off of me. American military power is a mirror image of Russia's Red Babel Tower. Jesus Christ was spotless, but was crucified by the mob. Law and Order, Herod's hired soldiers did the job. Flower power's fine, but innocence has got no protection. Had a hero worshipper's connection. The moral of the song is that the world is in a horrible place. Scientific industry devours the human race. Police in every country are filled gas and T.V. Secret masters everywhere, bureaucratized from you. Terrorists and police together build a lower-class rage. Propaganda murder manipulates the upper-class age. Hmm. can't tell the difference between a turkey and a provocateur. If you're feeling confused, the government's in there for sure.
17: Jesus oh, and who lie with every breath? who passion that leads
8: him lie,
0: and
17: likewise
9: I
0: do fear him.
3: It's movement time, don't stand still. Taj Mahal was next with I Pity the Poor Immigrant, a song that so, for me, encapsulates the belief systems of the people who, not only the people who voted for Trump, but the people who have remained faithful to him as he exposes himself as uh, well, I can't say the word on the air, but I would say a traitor to American democracy. We'll see. I doubt that'll ever be, uh, that'll ever be stated or adjudicated. And uh, Alan Ginsberg was before that with his Capital Air. And he did some recordings like that, sort of uh, out loud poetry with uh, Tom Petty. A whole set of uh, poetry along with rock and roll music I'm going to play something special now this is called Working and it's a musical presentation based on a book by Studs Turkle, a Chicago journalist and uh, leftist wrote about working. He wrote a book called Working which he interviewed people about their jobs, about their work. Let's see if we can play some of it here for you. Take a break.
12: Working by Stephen Schwartz and Nina Faso from the book by Studs Terkel, with songs by Craig Carnelia, Mickey Grant, Mary Rogers, Susan Birkenhead, Stephen Schwartz, and James Taylor, recorded before an audience. LA Theater Works is proud to present the first revised and updated version of this 1970s popular classic. Based on Studs Terkel's amazing book about everyday exertion and everyday people, working is for anyone who has ever punched a clock a cow, or a supervisor, or wanted to, and now, working.
17: Monday already. How can it be Monday? I Wait, have to be a waitress. Seconds, How else does the, the world come me? I, I, I started to have get have crops hard. when I was I eight. I couldn't go match, but done. every I little bit counts. Every to time to I would get behind. Hey, somebody, don't you
13: want to hear the story of my life? One of them movie companies, TV documentaries. Won't you come and ask me, please? And pay me a million dollars to tell you what I do at the store. Cause if you pay me a million dollars, I
17: wouldn't gotta- Don't you wanna hear story of my life? One of them movie companies, TV documentaries. Won't you come and ask me, please?
13: Typically in the morning, you wait at the shanty till 7 o'clock. You go in at 7, You start walking your way up the ladder climbing up the steel. Every two floors, you plank it off. Then you disconnect the bottom of the mast and you tie it to the boom on top of the choking cable. You get a heavy block on the job, probably weighs 200, 250 pounds, something like that. I saw it when I was 18 years old working structural steel. I worked on towers probably 120, 130 feet high. One of the things they say about somebody with an inferiority complex is, They're afraid of heights. So automatically, every iron worker has got an ego. You're doing something that somebody else can't do. And you wear a tool belt. And when you're a kid 18 years old and you have wrenches in like a holster, you're like a cowboy, a sailor. If I put a two by four on the floor, I couldn't knock you off with a stick. But if I put it up 50 feet and a little gust of wind comes and you overreact, you end up falling off. That's why most ironworkers start off as kids. When you're 18 and just out of school, the guy next to you walks the beam, you're going to try and walk the beam too. Ironworkers very, very rarely fall in the hole. That's what our term is. If somebody falls off a building, they fell in the hole. We talk a lot about it among ourselves. You ironwork long enough, you're going to get some real scares. I notice myself, I get a copper taste. You know, when you put a penny in your mouth when you were a kid, you know that taste? It's a taste of fear, I guess. As you get older, you reconcile yourself to the fact that it's easier to drop down and coon across the beam, we call it. It's easier, but you lose all the hair on the inside of your legs. You can always tell an iron worker because they don't have any hair on the inside of their legs. <laughs> Another bad thing. Up here, we don't have any outhouses or anything, so we've got to piss in the columns. Everybody's always drunk the night before, so they're always expelling themselves down these columns. But the problem with that is is that eventually something's going to happen where you're going to have to work down below. (laughs) Yeah, and the worst thing in the world is you have to burn something down there. You know, it's it's like cooking a toilet. But I always knew I was going to be an iron worker. My older brothers were iron workers. My father was an iron worker. So it was a natural course of events. My father was very disappointed. I didn't go to college. We had a college boy at work this summer. One time he saw a book in the back of my pocket. He was amazed. He says to me, You read? (laughs) That's what can get to you sometimes, you know, the non-recognition by other people. To say a man is just a laborer, a woman is just a housewife, it bothers you sometimes. Sometimes, some mornings, I look across the skyline for a building I worked on, say, uh, that office building right there, and I look down and I can see big fancy car pulling into the parking garage I built. All
3: right, that was a couple of cuts from from a uh, presentation, musical actually, by based on the story by Studs Terkel called Working. And uh, first we heard uh, Hear America Singing, words by Walt Whitman. And second was Iron Worker Monologue, guy talking about working 130, 140 feet up in the air and how uh, iron workers don't fall. <laughs> He said, uh, people with inferiority complexes are afraid of heights. Well, that's me. I was looking for some information, uh, writing a piece about early teacher organizing, sort of pre-teachers union uh, efforts to organize teachers. And I ran into this anti-union... Uh, I ran into this anti-union website which was talking about the scandals, union leadership. And they had three different cases of union officials who had absconded with funds. I think one was 400,000. The other was 800,000. The others were smaller than those. And... Uh, sort of reproducing that these union union uh, officials had taken money from their membership. A terrible thing, by the way. Certainly not meant to, to allow that to happen or excuse that. But it reminded me of several similar scandals, similar in some ways, dissim- dissimilar in others, For example, the VW Corporation and other auto manufacturers who were caught um, uh, rigging the ratings for gas mileage, in other words, claiming that the gas mileage in their cars was much higher than it really was, plus the fact that they knew that the gas mileage wasn't that high, but continued to lie about it, even um, adjusted the, the testing devices so the mileage came out higher and the pollution index was much lower than actual what about Wells Fargo A four billion dollar scandal there where Wells Fargo uh, Wells Fargo workers were encouraged to open bogus bank accounts that that customers hadn't even asked for, and then charging them fees on those accounts. And though there were workers who were doing it, the culpability was traced back up to executive vice presidents of Wells Fargo, and it was found that the company had profited to the tune of $4 billion. What about Jamie Dimon, a banking executive, sort of a, for a while there, he was kind of like the new whiz kid, uh, bank president. He was articulate. He was cute. He was, uh, sort of playful, had a sense of humor. Dimon one year reported that he had lost. They didn't know where $6 billion had gone his statement to the congressional committee that was investigating the uh, the whole affair was we just don't know where the money is six billion dollars now recently the congressional budget office estimated that the pentagon had disappeared one trillion dollars there was one trillion dollars at the Pentagon in the Pentagon's budget that was lost over a 20 25 year period 1 trillion dollars and all the fuss and feathers about offshore accounts which companies move money to offshore places to avoid taxes if you and I do it it's tax evasion and it's a bust a major bust if they do it it's called tax avoidance it's called using the tax code to your advantage that was estimated at 20 trillion dollars now the trump administration has bragged about getting some of that money back by by how by gifting those corporations So, while I am definitely upset about union Union officials absconding with uh, their. Mm-mm-mm-mm.
14: Yeah, it's Out Square. I'm,
3: uh, I, I'm uh, messing with some things. Have you seen
10: that video? Let's watch a full-length movie on
9: YouTube with Mike Spiegelman.
5: to let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman or Carl, or better known as L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's our acronym. Hi, Carl.
16: Hi, Mike.
5: I was just telling people that if they want to find us on their podcast feed, they should search by our acronym.
7: All right, I got to get some headphones so I can hear our amazing guest who calls in every week.
17: To the edge
7: of insanity.
4: Hello, poppies. You were listening to Pop Off the Sound of Musical Curiosity. I'm your host, Bear, filling in the first hour for Bughouse Where And yes, it is that time of the year where I generally do an annual spring cleaning mix. But I'm doing something a little different today for all you winners out there who uh, have stuck yourself in self-quarantine, which is the right thing to do. But remember, self-quarantine is not the same as isolation. So make sure you get outside, walk that dog, play some board games with your kids, and stay off of those screens. This is not an excuse to be on screens more, be on them less. In fact, I have disconnected my internet hold the plug on that sucker at home still get through it on the phone but don't really have any apps on there anyway today I'm going to be playing you just a shit ton of feel good music all with positive messages uh, uplifting get together kind of anthems get your mojo in order and uh, i are going to start off with one from way back in 1932 I believe is that right I don't know But uh, it's a classic, and it's the full version, A and B side. It's Benny Goodman with Gene Krupa. Sing, sing, sing. Um, Pop off the sound of musical curiosity.